0: This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. I'm always very honored and humbled that you, uh, that you come and we have the opportunity to, to study the Word together. And if you would go ahead and open your Bibles or uh, your devices, however you access the Word, and turn to Daniel chapter 5, and that will actually help you out to, uh, to be able to just uh, have it open there. On March 19, 2003, which would be, what, 18, 18 and a half years ago or so, Saddam Hussein, the former dictator of Iraq, and his two sons named Uday and Qusey, invited a few close friends and advisors to have dinner with them at an exclusive restaurant in downtown Baghdad. Now what's interesting is that they did this despite the fact that they were the prime targets of several hundred thousand U.S. and coalition forces who at that moment had gathered at the nearby border of Kuwait. All the troops were waiting on was the order from Washington. Uh, They would move in and attempt to dismantle Saddam's regime and if possible capture this brutal, brutal dictator that had been responsible to promote acts of terrorism around the world. But despite this massive military operation that, again, was one command away from launching an advanced air and ground attack, Saddam and his sons didn't seem the least bit concerned, and and they weren't about to let uh, these coalition troops stop an opportunity to party with some of their good friends. Well, as they gathered at this exclusive restaurant that supposedly was secure and safe and out-of-sight Someone close enough to Saddam that knew of his whereabouts tipped off the U.S. special forces who were operating in the area. And they sent the GPS coordinates of this restaurant to the generals who were directing the military effort there in Kuwait. And after coming to the conclusion that this, well, this intelligence report seemed to be fairly credible, they relayed this information to the top brass back in Washington who then related on to then-President George Bush at the White House, who then called in and conferred with his top advisors, and within minutes, the decision had been made. The order was given to interrupt that party in Baghdad with a couple of Tomahawk cruise missiles. The missiles were subsequently launched, and that party came to a crashing halt as those cruise missiles... Slammed into that restaurant, completely demolished it. Amazingly, Saddam and his two sons survived this initial attack. But it was the beginning of the end for this dictator who had ruled Iraq for 30 years. Now, there's a connection, and the reason I tell this story is because this party with Saddam and his friends was heavy in irony. Uh, in so many ways, this mirrored another party that had taken place about 2,500 years earlier. In fact, it was a party that took place just a few miles away from where Saddam's party took place. Saddam's party took place in the modern day city of Baghdad, but the party 2,500 years earlier took place in the ancient city of Babylon, which was only about 30 miles southwest of the modern-day city of Baghdad. Now, Daniel chapter 5 tells of this party. It's, It's a party that involved Belshazzar, ruler of Babylon. And just as Saddam felt safe, even while almost in the shadow of the coalition forces, so did Belshazzar feel safe ruling over a city that was surrounded by the enemy coalition forces of the Medes and the Persians. Now, Belshazzar felt secure because In his mind, and in the minds of the 1.2 million people that lived in that city of Babylon, they felt that Babylon was invincible. I mean, first of all, because the city was huge. It covered a circumference of 60 miles. That The walls protecting the city were 80 feet high, and And our our ceiling here is probably about 20, 25 feet high. And so try to project that, uh, just understand that. But some actually feel like that the walls extended significantly higher than 80 feet. The, The walls were also 60 to 80 feet thick. And they say, and this was interesting to me, they say that the footing of the wall extended down another 35 feet underground to prevent anyone from tunneling under it. But not only did the city appear to be impenetrable, but if an entire army surrounded the city, cut off the outside food supply, no worries, because the city had saved up, reportedly, 20 years worth of food. So even if it never planted another crop, even if it never harvested another crop, um, the entire city could live 20 years off of what they had in storage. In short, it was believed that the city of Babylon was indestructible. No military could ever conquer the city. And and so just as Saddam Hussein felt safe in throwing a party in the city of Baghdad, Belshazzar felt safe in throwing a party in the city of Babylon. Now, Daniel chapter 5 documents this party 2,500 years ago. And something that I want to point out, before we get to our reading, is that this time frame in history, even though we're dealing with the supposed indestructible city of Babylon, uh, yet this time frame was very unstable. In fact, as you read the book of Daniel, as you move from Daniel chapter 4 into Daniel chapter 5, Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon, move into Daniel chapter 5, you need to realize that between these two chapters, chapters 4 and chapter 5, approximately 25 years has elapsed. And in that 25-year period, to to show you the great instability, there there were four, and actually in a sense, five different kings. Let me give you a little bit of history here, and and, and don't worry too much about the names. I won't put them on your final exam. But, But King Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon for about 45 years. He died in 562 before Christ was born. And some of you would remember King Nebuchadnezzar, that, that he was the one that became so prideful and God had to bring him down a notch. And remember how he did it? He, he basically turned him into pasture to where he, uh, you know, he, he had to eat grass like a cow. Uh, the Bible says his hair grew long like the feathers of an eagle. His nails grew long like the claws of a bird. After seven years, he was humbled. He learned his lesson. And, and the Bible says that he was restored back to sanity. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was succeeded by his son, Amil Marduk, or he actually is more commonly known as Evil Merodach. And just some loving advice for you parents. (sighs) Please don't name your son Evil. Um, I know Evil Knievel did all right with his nickname, but that wasn't his real name. His real name was Robert Craig Knievel but but evil merodach in history it's interesting he wasn't that evil in fact in in 2 kings chapter 25 verse 27 it, it notes his kindness to Jewish king jehoakin he released him from prison evil merodach ruled for 2 years he was executed by his brother-in-law named nergalsar who ruled 4 years nergalsar was then succeeded by his son labashi marduk who was evidently just a kid, and I was researching this, and uh, it said he was a minor, and some suggested that he was about 13 years old, but because he was so young and not fit to rule, you know what they did? They just killed him. You know, he's so young, he's not going to be a good leader, so let's just kill him. Well, the king who came into power at that point was Nabonidus, and And he was known in history as the last king of the Babylonians. However, near the end of his reign, and and it's not known for sure, but Nabonidus decided to go into Saudi Arabia. There was an oasis there, and they think that he wanted to retire with a good life. And uh, so his son was named, uh, Belshazzar was named as co-regent, holding down the fort in Babylon. And Belshazzar would have been the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, all of this history sounds unnecessary for a Sunday morning, and, and it probably is, but, but I mention this to highlight the political instability. Kings would come, kings would go, and the transition from one king to another almost always involves some kind of conspiracy and an assassination. But anyway, in our, in our scripture, in Daniel chapter 5, it takes place in Babylon after a very tumultuous 25 years. And Babylon finds itself surrounded by the powerful armies of the Medes and the Persians. And and historians feel like that there were probably 200,000 troops that were part of this military effort that had surrounded the city of Babylon. But but as we get into the first verses of Daniel chapter 5, you don't sense any panic. You don't sense any concern among the Babylonians. Because, again, despite the military buildup of 200,000 soldiers outside their city walls, they thought Babylon was invincible. And so King, uh, King Belshazzar, and this is kind of in an in-your-face act of of arrogance, he decides to throw a major wingding of a party. While a 1,000 campfires, or, or perhaps 5,000 or maybe 10,000 campfires of the Medes and the Persians could be seen right outside the city walls, Belshazzar decides to flaunt the might of the Babylonian machine, the, the, the empire. And he throws a party and basically laughs at the armies right outside of his door. So, what happens at this party? Thankfully, Scripture documents documents it. Let's pick it up in Daniel chapter 5 verse 1. A number, of king, a, a number of years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. And this next part is really important. While Belshazzar was drinking, he gave orders to bring in the gold and the silver cups that his predecessor, which would have been his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that he and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank toast from them to honor... Listen honor their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, as we look at this party and study this party, archaeologists, as if they've gone and excavated there in, in Babylon, they have uncovered banquet rooms that they believed could uh, easily have held 5,000 people. So, entertaining 1,000 guests in a banquet hall in Babylon was no sweat. Well, at this party, the wine began to flow freely. And when the wine flows freely, and people get a few drinks under their belt, you know what happens so many times. People do things that they would normally never do. And so Belshazzar gets a few drinks under his belt, and he, and he starts feeling good, and he starts feeling clever, as people under the influence so often feel. And all of a sudden, he has an idea, and, and possibly in his mind, he feels that this is a cutting-edge idea that is so clever that nobody in the history of the world has ever thought of before. And his idea was to bring out the gold and the silver goblets that his grandfather had taken from the temple in Jerusalem back 60 or so years ago. Now, it's important for us to understand how much of a no-no this was. In in the Old Testament, there were certain items that had been consecrated to the Lord uh, by the priests, and this act of consecration made those items sacred, which means from that point forward, after they were consecrated, they were never to be used casually, they were never to be used carelessly, especially for a drunken party with people that had no regard for spiritual things. Using these sacred vessels would have been considered blasphemous. Now, I'll admit that I can't understand that mentality because today we don't have sacred items like that. You know, in this dispensation of grace, there are no physical items in this church nor in any other church that are sacred like those vessels. I don't know, some of you, uh, the old timers, you, you, maybe you heard them talk about standing behind the sacred desk and preaching the word. This, this desk here, this table is not sacred. In fact, uh, somebody educated me on what this the, the, the style of this table actually is. You know what it's called? I guess it's called a pub table. I don't know. It doesn't sound really appropriate for church, does it? Um, but, but this table is not sacred. Sometimes we joke about sacred cows or other practices in, in a church that are, that are basically sacred and untouchable. But whereas those items and and those traditions may be considered special in each particular religious setting, yet in this dispensation of grace, there are no biblically sanctioned physical items that are sacred like those consecrated gold and silver goblets that have been taken from the temple. And during this period of time, using these consecrated items for a party of this nature was about as serious of a religious infraction as you could ever commit and so try to picture the scene. Can we just let our imagination flow a little bit? Perhaps King Belshazzar in his tipsy state comes up with what he feels like is this clever idea, and so he says, servants, my brilliant and my extraordinary mind is at work again. And I just remembered that my grandfather brought from Jerusalem some gold cups that they had taken out of the temple. They're over there in the museum. Go get them. The servants go. They ride back in the banquet room with the sacred vessels. And as they walk in, I can imagine that the order is given for everyone to get quiet. And so perhaps the dancing stops. And and the musicians put down their instruments. And all of the talking and and the laughing subsides. and, And you can almost feel this anticipation. Because everyone has that sense. You know, sometimes you just sense something and there's anticipation and, and they have that anticipation that they're about to witness something wild and crazy and daring and risky. Something that's never been done before. And with every eye on him, Belshazzar takes his own personal wine that his personal cupbearer has tasted to make sure that it was not spiked with poison. And the king takes that wine, fills up one of the sacred goblets that had been taken from the temple. And perhaps with a smirk on his face, he possibly slops the wine to his inebriated lips. Some of it perhaps spills down on his beard and onto his robe and and his guests. All 1,000 of them look on at amazement at such a daring and clever act that mocked the God of the Israelites. But then maybe about at that time, King Belshazzar goes a step further and, and he lifts the sacred goblet high in the air and shouts to the gods of the Babylonians. And, and I can imagine that at that time, that place that had been silent now explodes with cheering and applause and maybe even a standing ovation. Now, let, let me call a timeout and say something before we go on. And I, I pray that the Holy Spirit would drive this deep into our hearts. You know, even though, as I just said, uh, we, we don't have holy and sacred vessels anymore in, in our worship. Yet, I'm afraid that sometimes we still allow the sacred to become common and even desecrated. Do you know how that happens in your life, in my life? Well, well, today the sacred vessel is now us. Our bodies are those sacred vessels. The Bible refers to us as temples of the Holy Spirit. And we're to be those sacred and holy vessels. I, I don't know if you realize this, but we were created to live in holiness. But too many times we find ourselves with unholy lifestyles, full of addictions and habits and thoughts and things and language and media Things that take this vessel, this temple of the Holy Spirit, and make it unholy. But, but then not only do we harm and destroy the sacred vessels of our bodies, we've also gone so far to lose the reverence for God. And, and I don't believe that God wants us to view Him as this unapproachable, distant God, but I believe that we need to see God as more than just a higher power, more than just a man upstairs, more than just a force within us, because He's God. You know, the, the, uh, the, the original language of the Bible tells us that he is God, El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. Uh, it, it says that he is God, Elohim, which means mighty and strong. It, it, it says that he is God, Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord who provides. It says that he is God, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. It says he is God, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is our peace. It says that he is God, El Elyon, God the Most High. And in our effort to emphasize that God is our friend, which he is, I'm afraid that we've sometimes reduced him down to our good old buddy. And again, yes, he is our friend that sticks closer than a brother, but don't forget that he is more more than just our bro. He is more than just a pal. He's God. And he deserves our respect, and he deserves our reverence. And so I'm afraid that we've taken these holy vessels of our bodies and the temple of the Holy Spirit and we've made them common. Back to our account. The sacred goblets from the temple are brought over. The pagan guests are drinking wine out of them. And maybe at that time the the signal is given for the music and the dancing to start up again. But perhaps now it's with increased fervor. Because they perhaps want the Medes and the Persians. All 200,000 soldiers to hear the party. And let them know that all of Babylon doesn't give a rip. That the Medes and the Persians have the city of Babylon surrounded. But then something happens. During what might have been the loudest and the wildest part of the party. Because the wine keeps on flowing. An unexpected and an unusual guest suddenly appears. And this uninvited guest, try to picture this. Try to picture this. It was a disembodied or unattached set of fingers. And in view of the entire party, the hand slowly begins to write a mysterious message on the palace wall. Let's read about it in verse 5. At that very moment? What moment? Well, the Hebrew construction of the sentence indicates that at the very moment that they began drinking from the sacred vessels, they saw the fingers of the human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, How do you think he reacted? His face turned pale with fear. Such terror gripped him that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way beneath him. Now, I I don't know if anyone has ever kept a record of the shortest period of time it took for someone to go from drunk to sober. (laughs) But this instance would have to be in the running. Belshazzar probably laughing, having the time of his life, all of a sudden had the smile wiped off of his face as he saw that mysterious hand writing on the wall. And the Bible said he was so overcome with fear, his knees began knocking, his knees gave way, so I'm assuming he fell on the floor. And by the way, I I know you all are in the advanced class, You, you knew this, but that saying, the handwriting on the wall, this is where it originated. If you didn't know, just that's your extra tip that you don't have to pay for today. What happened next? Well, verse seven, the king shouted for the enchanters and astrologers and fortune tellers to be brought before him and He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever can read this writing, tell me what it means, will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor and will wear a gold chain around his neck. He will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Have you ever thought of why the third? Why the third highest? Well, um, remember Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, was first in the kingdom. But he had vacated the area, gone to that oasis in Saudi Arabia. And so he had appointed his son to kind of be, be the next ruler. And so, whoever could come forward and give the meaning would be elevated just beneath the authority of the father and the, and the son rulership. Well, none, in the, none of the wise men in, in Babylon could read or interpret the words. And by now, can you imagine the king's got to be panicking? Let's keep reading verse 10. But when the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall. Now, the queen mother would have probably been Belshazzar's mother, and for some reason she wasn't at the party. Maybe she was in the kitchen cooking. I, I, I don't know. But but she heard all of the commotion, and it said she hurried in, she rushed in, and after she saw what was going on, she said to Belshazzar, long live the king, don't be so pale and afraid of this. There's a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. Now, here the queen mother was remembering back 30 years prior when her dad, King Nebuchadnezzar, had had a couple of dreams, and no one could find the meaning, so they had brought Daniel in and he had been able to translate the dream and so she says uh, during nebuchadnezzar's reign this man was found to have insight understanding wisdom as though he himself were a god your predecessor king nebuchadnezzar made him chief over all the magicians enchanters astrologers fortune tellers of babylon so obviously daniel was no longer in a place of authority belshazzar didn't even seem to know about him but but they dispatched some people to find daniel who by the way is no longer a teenage boy By now, he's probably 80 years old. And look what King Belshazzar says to Daniel. If you can read these words and tell me their meaning, you will be clothed in purple robes of royal honor, and you will wear a gold chain around your neck. You will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Daniel answered the king and catch this. He said, keep your gifts or give them to someone else, but I will tell you what the writing means. Now, whenever Daniel said, keep your gifts, here's what he was saying. He was saying, king, you can't buy me. You can't control me with your gifts. And, and that was common. They would reward people, give them a high position, give them a lot of money. Well, at that point, then they felt indebted to the king. And so Daniel said, you're not going to own me. You know, sometimes we find ourselves in similar situations where we get under bondage. And, you know, this happens in churches all the time. Someone that maybe is very opinionated, wealthy, or super intimidating Becomes the church boss, and churches end up trying to please them more than pleasing God. This is also very common in government. (laughs) Do I need to mention more? Politicians are bought off all the time to push bills that would be favorable to some of their constituents. Or bringing it closer to us. Many times we get in bondage to friends, family, and we live our lives under pressure of having to please them. Daniel says, Sorry, king, I I don't want the pressure of feeling indebted to you because of money or a high position in your government. Now, it's interesting, at the end of the chapter, the king went ahead and rewarded him, but Daniel had already already let him know he couldn't be bought. Well, Daniel began his interpretation, and as he did so, he gave Belshazzar a history lesson. He said, Belshazzar, your your grandfather had, had a great kingdom, but he became arrogant, prideful, and he told him how his pride had led him to fields to eat grass like a cow and but in that history lesson he let Belshazzar know that his, his grandpa had learned his lesson but listen to what else Daniel said you are his successor old Belshazzar and you knew all of this you knew that your granddaddy was humbled and had to live like a beast in the field for seven years you knew yet You've not humbled yourself. For you have defiled, or or, I'm sorry, defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. In other words, Belshazzar, you knew very well the story of your grandpa, but you're still cocky. You're still arrogant. So... God has sent this hand to write a message. That leads me to say this. Many of us know. We know what is right. We know what is wrong. I'll admit there are people in other parts of the world that don't know truth. We know truth. We know what is right. We No, we shouldn't be involved in sin and addictions and wrongdoing, but we still choose to do what's wrong. And and, and Daniel said, Belshazzar, you knew. You can't plead ignorance on this. You're, You're not an idiot. You knew. You knew. But you still chose to be arrogant. Now, for the interpretation of this strange inscription, Daniel said in verse 25, mene, mene, tekel, parsin, or some translations say parsin. This is what these words mean, mene. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. And it was mentioned twice to show how serious it was, mene, mene. Verse 27, tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. uh, Parsin, your kingdom is divided, given to the medes, and the Persians. Wow. Do you want to know the rest of the story? This is so fascinating to me. Um, You know, Scripture doesn't record everything in history. We get additional information, but I love it whenever there is a true historical account and a true biblical account. Did you know that they dovetail together? There's no conflict between true history and true Bible. And so, Scripture doesn't record all of this, but we get additional information. Oh, this is so fascinating to me. It may not be for you, but thanks for listening. We get additional information from the Greek historian Herodotus, who lived in the 5th century B.C. The Euphrates River, which was a massive river, it ran north and south, north, uh, you know, into the city of Babylon from the north, out the south, and Herodotus says that for almost two years, the Persian general, Cyrus the Great, had secretly had his men upstream, far upstream, out of sight of Babylon, out of sight of Belshazzar, and here's what they were doing, they were secretly digging a canal to divert the Euphrates River into a large swamp. And again, this is just so amazing. God's timing is perfect. Would you believe that that very night, while the drunken party was going on, while Daniel was giving the interpretation to the handwriting on the wall, would you believe they finished digging that last little section and diverted the water and just like somebody turning off a faucet, The water from the mighty Euphrates River stopped flowing into the city of Babylon. And under the cover of darkness, probably while the party was still going on, while many of the top leaders were probably drunk as skunks, the armies of the Medes and the Persians walked in the Euphrates Riverbed under the massive Babylonian city walls where the mighty Euphrates would have normally made this impossible. They walked into the city in the riverbed and so surprised the Babylonians they surrendered without a fight and the fall of this great Babylonian empire simply recorded for us in the last two verses which read verse 30 that very night belshazzar the Babylonian king was killed and darius or also pronounced darius the mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. And this right here signaled the end of the Babylonian Empire and began the Persian Empire. And and, and again, the Bible doesn't say this, but the historian Herodotus said that the only casualty that night, one casualty, it was King Belshazzar. And so Babylon that supposedly was completely secure, impenetrable, invincible with the food supply for the next 20 years was now conquered. Belshazzar was killed. The party was over. Yeah, I just have chills here as I think of how God orchestrated all of this, the timing. What is God saying to us here? I think there are three practical take-home lessons One is that even though the situations will vary, the names will change down through history, there are many people just like Belshazzar that are still choosing to do wrong despite knowing what's right. And they say, yeah, I know I shouldn't do this, but they still do it. Belshazzar knew better. And many of us do too as well. But we still hang on to habits, attitudes, choose to float along instead of seriously serving Jesus. And and, and again, Daniel said, you knew, Belshazzar, you knew, and I wonder if God of the judgment will tell us the same thing, you knew, you knew. Second take home is is that many people are depending on some type of wall to protect them. That wall may be a wall of being a good person. That wall may be a wall of baptism. That wall may be a wall of American conservatism. There are many walls that we hide behind trying to convince ourselves that we're okay. But I want to remind you, there is no wall so high, there is no fortress so secure that can hide us and keep out an all-powerful, all-knowing, holy God. Thirdly, um, we need to make sure that the sacred never becomes common in our lives. May we always be filled with reverence towards God and the things of God. And and I guess he, and again, he's our true fan, friend, but don't forget, he is God, not a God, but he is the one and the only God. Amen. And considering the price that he paid for our soul, I think it would be very offensive for us to reduce God down to just being our buddy or our pal or the man upstairs or the higher power or the force within us. Isaac uh, Wimberly is is a worship pastor. I believe is in Plano, Texas, and some of you would be familiar with him. He does a lot of different word presentations; just powerful, and I can't do it like he does. But he um, he did one for Carrie Job's song uh, "Forever," and many of you have heard this. In fact, I think a few years ago, I I did a feeble effort to uh, to, to read this. But for our wrap up, could we let Isaac Wimberly's words? Help elevate God to his rightful place of respect and reverence. Here's what he writes so beautifully. If there are words for him, then I don't have them. You see, my brain has not yet reached the point where it could form a thought that could adequately describe the greatness of my God. And my lungs, <laughs> They've not yet developed the ability to release a breath with enough agility to breathe out the greatness of his love. And my voice, you see, my voice is so inhibited, restrained by human limits. It's hard to even send the praise up. You see, if there are words for him, I don't have them. My God, his grace is remarkable. Mercies are innumerable. Strength is impenetrable. He is honorable, accountable, favorable. He's unsearchable, yet knowable. Indefinable, yet approachable. Indescribable, yet personal. He's beyond comprehension, further than imagination. Constant through generations, king of every nation. But there are, if there are words for him, I don't have them. You see, my words are few. And in trying to capture the one true God, using my vocabulary would never do, but I I use words as an expression, an expression of worship to a Savior, a Savior who is both worthy and deserving of my praise. So I use words. My my heart extols the Lord, blesses His name forever. He's won my heart. He's captured my mind, and, and He's bound them both together He's defeated me in my rebellion, conquered me in my sin. He's welcomed me into his presence, completely invited me in. He's made himself the object of my sight, flooding me with mercies in the morning, drowning me with grace in the night. But but if there are words for him, I don't have them. But what I do have is good news. (laughs) For my God knew that man-made words would never do the... The, the words are just tools that we use to point to the truth. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, the word living proof. He's the image of the Im- invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, giving nothing is formation. And by his word, he sustains in the power of his name. For he is before all things and over all things. He reigns. Holy is his name. So praise Him for His life. The way He persevered in strife, the humble Son of God, becoming the perfect sacrifice. Praise Him for His death. That He willingly stood in our place. That He lovingly endured the grave. That that He battled our enemy and on the third day rose in victory. He is everything that was promised. Praise Him as the risen King. Lift your voice and sing, for one day he will return to us, and we will finally be united with our Savior for eternity. Eternity. So as I read this last paragraph, would you stand to your feet and let's just worship the God over all? So it's not just the words that I proclaim. For my words point to the word, and the word has a name. Hope has a name. Joy has a name. Peace has a name. Love has a name. And that name is Jesus Christ. May we as a people restore the reverence to God Almighty. And as we wrap up our time together, here's my closing question, knowing that you're to be holy and a sacred vessel of this holy God, are you living up to that? Have you made common what is sacred? Father, I want to thank you for your word. And even in this bizarre passage, Lord, thank you that it's confirmed with historical accounts. It's not just a fun story to tell on a Sunday morning, but Lord, there's confirmation that this indeed did happen. Lord, I pray that you would just call us up short if there's pride in our lives and Lord if we're taking these bodies that were created to live in holiness but Lord we've we've created sacrilege and Father we've desecrated I pray God that you would just help us to come back to you Lord I pray that we would live our lives in holiness Lord thank you for the fact that you're a friend that sticks closer than a brother but Lord, You are God. You're God Almighty. And Lord, we don't ever want to reduce You down to the common. So Lord, I pray that this week as we we go into situations, Lord, I pray that we would make sure that we're living holy lives and lives that would please You. And God, may we not have to hear at the judgment You knew. You knew, You knew, but... May we hear the words, good and faithful, faithful servant, you've done well, welcome aboard. So God, I pray that as we leave here, that we would just be very, very mindful of this. Lord, I thank you for these people and those that are listening online, those that are listening on the radio. And I pray, God, that we would go on from this day forward. God, that we would protect these holy vessels that have been consecrated to God. I pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. And all of God's wonderful people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you for coming.